Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Andy. Thanks for joining us today, Andy. Andy is a good friend of KJ who loves music, Rockets, and C++, and conveniently also likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Tom. The movie is 2014's Ex Machina. It falls into the uh, drama, mystery, sci-fi genres. The director was Alex Garland. Uh, Alex Garland is often credited uh, under writer credits with movies such as Sunshine, Never Let Me Go, and Dread, which is the second Judge Dread movie. And he did uh, wear the hats of both writer and director in Annihilation and the TV ser- miniseries Devs. I'm going to give you the top 14 and 14. So big uh, movies in 2014 included Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Interstellar, John Wick, The Maze Runner, Michael Bay's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Giver, Divergent, Lucy, which was involved with uh, Scarlett Johansson as a AI, Big Hero 6, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, Whiplash, Edge of Tomorrow, and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Of course, we have to bring up anything Planet of the Apes related after our prior episode. Now, Tom, uh, tell us a little bit about this movie and why you brought it to our attention today. The movie is about Caleb, Caleb Smith, who's a 26-year-old programmer played by Domahal Gleason, who wins a contest sponsored by his company a company called Blue Book, which is basically Google. It's a, the biggest search engine in this, this world. And the contest allows him to go to visit Nathan, the, the boss of the company's uh, home, and, you know, whatever. He thinks he's just there to visit. It turns out he is there to be the human component in a Turing test in which he is testing the artificial intelligence of Ava, played by Alicia Vindekern. He is going to see if she has consciousness or not. And while involved in that test, she becomes suspicious of Nathan and his true intentions. I have a lukewarm response to this movie. I think it's very interesting to discuss, and I enjoy writing about it. Rewatching it, I, I find the dialogue uh, to be, you know, a little rough, and the characters to, or the circumstances of the movie to be. To, to come off as a little false. That being said, what interests me about the movie, beside the aesthetic, which I like, is that the, the questions he's bringing up and the observations he, he being Garland, Alex Garland, is making, I, I think are very interesting. And I think they correspond well with his, his ove, his, you know, his work that he's done, both in Annihilation and Devs later on. So that's why I brought it here, because I think it would not so much be an excellent film, but that it would sponsor excellent discussion. I'm going to just say that this is the second time that I've watched this movie, and I did enjoy it the first time I watched it. Uh, I like a lot of these um, sci-fi, artificial intelligence 
type movies. And I think the reason I particularly liked it was it's tough to keep one's attention with minimal characters. And I, I think while maybe not the best movie ever, I think it did actually keep me engaged with the limited amount of pieces. And it was more of a, a chess game, if you will, uh, to figure out exactly what was going on you know, between the three of them, the AI, uh, the eccentric CEO, and the lab rat, which was pretty much the gentleman being tested. Uh, well, we'll talk about that, who was really being tested later in this episode. But I did enjoy it. I don't want to say it's one of my favorite sci-fi movies ever, but I, it did keep me engaged and, and, and had my attention. And I did actually like the, the way it ended. So I'm going to leave it at that because I'm sure we'll discuss that further. KJ, what, what are your thoughts on this movie? Any, any history with it? Uh, first time I watched Ex Machina was while I was traveling for work. Um, I think I've mentioned in previous episodes. Um, and then I watched it again with my wife. She wanted to watch it because it was nominated and won Best Achievement in Visual Effects. So we watched it together. We liked it. Um, I didn't think it was anything special, but I do enjoy these smaller sci-fi movies where there's um, a very limited number of characters and they're kind of dealing with um, ideas. Uh, but I don't think this movie treaded a lot of new ground that other sci-fi movies haven't already done. Um, I do think it looked really cool. It sounded really cool. But part of the problem was because it looked so cool and sounded pretty cool, I wanted it to surprise me more and do more. Um, but yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, Andy, we're going to turn this one over to you. Um, do you have any relationship with this movie? Well, I'm a developer. So AI and uh, robots and sci-fi in general like really fascinate me. So as soon as I saw the previews, I knew it was like my kind of movie. Um, and I did enjoy it a lot rewatching it. It's, it's clearly you, you, I think you guys described it well, but it's, it's definitely flawed has its flaws, but yeah, the aesthetic mixed with just kind of like the, the, the thoughts that um, like the questions that are brought up, I, I agree are really interesting. This is the kind of movie I can't watch with my wife. She won't watch it <laughs> or, she wouldn't enjoy it <laughs> watching it. So I watched it by myself. I actually uh, watched it with my dad, which was a nice thing. Um, he's, uh, he's not as quite as techie as me, but he really enjoyed it. I do. I think I've seen it three or four times. Um, and so rewatching it again, this time I was, I was trying to be particularly critical in my thought process and, uh, and it's a little ridiculous, but man, it really looks good. And it's, and it's like, it gives you, you, you're in the atmosphere of it, you know? I think for people that aren't used to a lot of AI movies, it did a pretty good job of, of making it interesting. Um, talking about finding answers to questions, uh, when we have guests on, we do ask them a critical, pivotal question. What snack do you think would be the best to enjoy while watching Ex Machina? Well, I would say a, a bottle of vodka to the face, uh, basically. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a lot of drinking in this movie. <laughs> Um, Nathan has got to be an alcoholic. I mean, uh, that's one of the um, problematic pieces. I don't know how he can accomplish any of the unbelievable technical accomplishments that he that he did while being really drunk all the time. Maybe he was celebrating because he thought he was mostly done. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty much a, a bottle of vodka. 
I think which is, that, not, which is not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I, but I, I think based on this movie, um, maybe that's maybe that lucid state is where his genius resides. <laughs> so he has to unlock it. <laughs> yep. No, yep. I, I think I agree uh, that that while while it might be a challenge, maybe it'll enhance the movie. I don't know. Maybe we haven't seen it in its its desired state. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that is definitely something that I could see would would go with the theme of this movie. Uh, at this time, Tom, I'm going to turn it over to you to start up our, our movie quiz. So take it away. It's time for Movie Quiz. All right. Here we are at round one of the movie quiz. And we will uh, give this over to Andy. I'll let Andy pick as our illustrious guest. Here are the categories for round one. Openings and endgames. Rough talk. And count it out. I'm going to go with uh, Rough Talk. Rough Talk. All right. <laughs> Good start. So. <laughs> it's time for question one. Ava inspires difficult conversations between Nathan and Caleb. What is the difference between how Nathan and Caleb discuss Ava? What are each of the men looking for from the other? There is no definite right or wrong answer. There is only boring and interesting. So, locked in with a boring answer. <laughs> is it a boring, long-winded answer? <laughs> no, it's like three words. <laughs> oh, you got a shot. <laughs> I guess I'm locked in. I will also be locked in. Okay, very good. So, Andy, please, what do you have? Well, at least at the beginning, I would say uh, that, um, so I would say that Caleb was using like the, the terms of technology and he was looking for uh, the technical solution to what made Ava tick. And Nathan was looking for sex and emotion. Yeah, Caleb was looking for the technical info um, and Nathan was just looking for feelings. He wanted to discuss his feelings and everybody's feelings. <laughs> Uh, feelings okay i think all of us are in agreement that caleb treated her and i i said they said tech i said as a computer like the same way he would go through programming he took it from a very analytical approach and nathan wanted proof that he truly was a god that he had created life Mm -hmm. Hmm. 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 that's interesting okay very good so now what was he a god or was he in the history of gods? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I will tell you depending on who <laughs> wins this question. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think with this, um, my interpretation is that Caleb is interested in the, the analytical end of it, the, the tech, you know, as everyone here has said, the, the technical aspect of um, who she was and how her consciousness comes about. And Nathan is just interested in the effect she has or the feeling she has. Um, and so I'm going to award points to KJ and Andy. Um, and Nick, Nick, I think the, the where I held off, oh, he's so upset. For you people who can't see at home, Nick is rather <laughs> upset. Uh, I was trying uh, not to make a scene for our audio <laughs> listeners. Um, the, the reason why I'm holding off is I, I think that where the difference is Nathan is looking for how her AI has an effect on Caleb. 
right? I think that that's what it is. But Nick, instead of a point, I'm going to award you two points, putting you in the lead. The reason being that Nathan ultimately does want to be observed as a god. I think that is deep down what he wants. I'm a very wise man. You are very wise. No, no, Tom, you're a very wise man. Ah, okay. Well, I I, I already know that. (laughs) So starting right out of the bounds, we are already breaking the rules. Um, There are no rules. Yes. So Nick has two points and everybody else has one point. So, nice twist. Yes, I like it. Nice twist in the end. <laughs> I had to save Nick from the back. <laughs> he looked like he was going to have. But I did want to talk about that, regardless yeah. of one point, two point, or zero mm-hmm. points. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I actually gave that answer was whenever Caleb was talking about he was with, with the gods or like the gods, Nathan changed the language to he is a god. So he wanted that satisfaction of creating this entity. So I, that's why I, I didn't just say the feelings. I actually wanted, because mm-hmm. I, I truly think when it brings like that, he always dismisses Caleb. That was the one thing he like elevated that he said. He, yeah. Mr. So Quotable. He, yeah. Um, which we, we learn is, is kind of an act, right? Mm-hmm. The, the fact that he even refers to him as quotable. Mm-hmm. We know in the, the, the scene where Caleb, there's a one scene for our audience, Caleb quotes Robert Oppenheimer. Um, and Nathan pretends that he doesn't know what that quote is. And then later Nathan gets drunk and is reciting Oppenheimer quotes. He's lying on that couch hammered, reciting quotes from Oppenheimer. And you realize that this guy's kind of... Um, uh, any kind of appreciation or admiration he has for Caleb might be themed. Uh, you know, it, it helps you distrust the character. Um, but he, but even when he quotes Mr. Quotable, he misquotes him to what he wants it wants it to be. But that's the, that's the <laughs> thing, right? And and you know when when he misquotes him, so the quote is uh, something like from Caleb says, "If you've built a thinking machine, this is no longer the history of man. This is the history of gods." Nathan writes down or claims to have written down that Caleb says to Nathan, you are no longer a man. You are a God. (laughs) Uh, He liked it. He liked it. Oh yeah. I mean, one question is how much is that uh, Nathan's like ego coming through and, and where he wants to be perceived or how much is, is that like X, like how many levels of artifices there where he's really baiting uh, Caleb even more, I, you know what I mean? Like, like how, how much is it calculated and how much is it him just being a drunk, uh, ego, maniacal CEO, genius coder person? I'm right there with you, Andy. I, I think he, it's his ego and he's a drunk, maniacal coder person. I've met plenty of engineers and developers whose egos are so unbelievable. It's, it's tough to work with them. It's tough to deal with them. Um, I mean, Nathan's turned up to 11. It's extreme. The other thing is I feel like Nathan believing he's a god amongst men has been living with these mortals and the only way to relate to them is to pretend he doesn't know every quote that they're quoting to pretend he doesn't already know the conversation they're about to have so i don't think he's baiting caleb i think that's how he has to interact every day or at least that's how he thinks he has to act every day in order to relate to mere humans because he wants to be social on some level yeah i do think though that there is nothing gained either socially or in terms of the, the conditions of the test he set up 
by mishearing that he's a god. I think that just I think that just resonates with how he sees himself. It might serve to just throw Caleb, like a lot of what he does at the beginning, I feel like is to serve to uh, throw Caleb off a little bit, not off the trail or anything, but just like put him in a, a place of like, how uncomfortable is he at, in the first half of the movie? Like all of his body language and, and he's so awkward and uncomfortable. And part of that is just the uh, really intense, different situation he's placed in. But a lot of it is, is like, if Nathan had welcomed him in a normal way, you know, like he could have instantly made him feel much more comfortable and changed the dynamic of the movie, but he wanted him to be in that, that place Mm -hmm. where he was struggling. I don't know. It seemed like. That's interesting. Andy. I did not think that was intentional. I thought that's all Nathan was capable of, of doing. That's no matter what situation he was, Nathan was in, that's how he would welcome a guest to his house. It's, it's, it's the, the idea that, Oh, um, you're, you're coming here. I, I, I've seen on TV how to welcome a guest. What are the things that make me look good? What are the things that I think are cool? That's what I'm going to show you so that you accept me as a person is kind of how I saw that introduction. KJ, I'm, I'm in Andy's camp. I think pretty much unless he's super, super inebriated, um, anything that Nathan does is calculated, even if it looks like he's going, I think he was prepping his perfect lab rat to interact with the test subject. And that's the part I think is interesting. Who is really being tested here? Yes, I know it's the AI, but he's actually conditioning Caleb. In, in fact, look at the, the room or the environment. There's no windows. There's a, like everything is sealed off in isolation. It's not just for the AI. It's also to create the perfect test conditions uh, for his experiment. So that's why I actually think and maybe i got this more after a second watch because i was looking for things but i i really think that was how he was prepping the proper test and this is a a little bit of one of the problems i have with the movie there's these little things baked into the plot that that seem artificial the alcoholism or the um the you know the, the beginning uh seeds of alcoholism come off as a little bit of a, a little bit phony to me. Like it's, it's a way for the, the plot to go forward that, that I find a, a little hard to believe. But I, I really think that the performance, Oscar Isaac's performance is, is great in that role um, because he's a difficult character, but he's not, the, he's not the, the way you guys are describing him is like a, almost a little autistic. Like this is how humans act. This is how I need to act. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's just like this, this, ego trip who's you know kind of used to being the center of gravity because he has been since he was what 13 years old probably even before that all right this might not belong in this part of the episode so in my head canon nathan made a robot fell in love with the robot the robot used that to try to escape and this broke nathan so this whole experiment is nathan is trying to find somebody like him 10 years ago and wants to put him in the same situation and make sure that that person also falls in love with the robot and does what he did to make sure that Nathan still is a super genius. Um, Nathan doesn't know how to deal with his anger and that's why he's drinking. That's why he's secluded because it's the first time he fell in love. First time he was broken by that. I, I, I think though, and this is going to relate to later questions, um, that, there's, that, that Garland is setting up a how we call a, a filter or an overlap or, or an overlay excuse me that 
that speaks to a different interpretation. Right? Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a different interp- interpretation. Yeah. I think I everyone on this uh, show has a different interpretation because KJ yeah. pretty much just did fan fiction prequel <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that was like totally like uh, loosely supported by this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say there isn't the evidence that he's fallen in love with any of these things. I think there's the evidence that he uses them. There's certainly, a, you know, he's certainly sexual with, with his AIs. The idea that he's fallen in love with Ava or one of her earlier prototypes and therefore was broken and wants to punish Caleb, you know, seems, I, I would need more evidence than, than what the movie has provided. I think the movie is showing him as an eccentric binge drinking genius. Uh, when you were talking about the alcohol before, I was saying that he manipulated a lot of things. I don't think that was some, I think, I think he lives in isolation in without human presence, creating these artificial intelligence. There's something a little off with this guy. So I don't think he manipulated that drinking part, but I do think he goes through these binge cycles. So that's the one element that I think actually is his flaw. And, and actually in the end of this movie was his demise because he was drinking excessively and passed out. It gave Caleb a t- the one time that he could outmaneuver this genius. So I, I think that was one genuine flaw of this eccentric, you know, multi-billionaire. I think, I think he also flaw. thought that he could, uh, he was smart enough to basically have control over the situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he thought that, well, whether or not he could um, control his drinking, like as a true alcoholic, or if he just wanted to drink and he wanted to party, but I feel like he thought that he knew what was going to happen. He could predict the end game. And so it wasn't, I don't think he perceived it as very risky for him to be, you know, incapacitated because he just, he thought he knew everything that would happen. He knew all the plays, all the maneuvers. Yeah. It's locked in, just let it roll. Well, but KJ, I was going to say that I, I, the piece I don't necessarily agree with but is about the falling in love part. Because um, it's like, I, I don't know if it was exactly love, but I, I very much agree that he brought uh, Caleb in to have to develop that same emotional relationship, whatever it was, to find out that, that human connection that you would have versus just like the rational probing uh, a computer. Um, to see like what would develop and and see maybe see if it would match what happened to him or see what it, what it would do to another uh, you know regular person. Yeah, yeah. I, I the way I imagine it is there was some trauma there for him, and in order to try to get through that, he's recreating that scene. But yeah, who knows? I yeah, I, I just where is the evidence of the trauma? Kyoko's the, boy, the key. Kyoko. Kyoko is the most interesting character by far. I think so, and but, I think for his trauma. He, he is going through the trauma of being the creator and needing to, to create and destroy all of those iterations of a conscious being, many of which would be conscious enough to grab you in some way, but not conscious enough to, to keep or to maintain. Yeah, and you so don't get anything back from them. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's, it's a true ethical dilemma. He wants to be the creator. Like he... It's it's like the it's almost like the the sacrifice of the uh, of the the true genius like inventor person that he he can't afford to be almost like a, a good person because he is too, his work is too important and it requires somebody with like the the stamina to basically kill 
repeatedly conscious beings to be able to create what he thinks is, he thinks it's the next, next evolution. But, but to doing that requires his sacrifice of being in it every day, getting, maintaining these emotional relationships or growing them over time and growing these children almost, and then having to just get rid of them. He's, he's become callous in a way because he has to. Oh yeah. And, it, and that's gotta be so tough to deal with. So I, I'm maybe you have to you. drink. But I don't, yeah. I don't see any evidence that he's ever felt anything for anyone. That, that, that's, I think the, the problem I'm having, even in the, there's at one point in the, for people who haven't seen it, there's one point where Caleb finds old videos of Nathan building some prior AIs. You see a blonde woman, you see uh, Jade, she's credited as, as, as a, another Asian woman. And he doesn't seem to be particularly affectionate towards them. There's one other AI, Kyoko, um, played by the star of Devs, and he's sexual with her, in, in, in quite literally. Um, they, they, have, they have sex, but he's also very cruel to her. Uh, and the cruelty might be performance, but I, I don't see him ever be kind to her. So I but agree I they don't show it. that. I agree they mm. don't show that at all. Yeah. Um, but in my head canon, he would have deleted all those videos because he doesn't want to see that. He doesn't want to see himself being tricked by this AI. Mm. It doesn't hold up, but... Well, you know, no, what I will say is, Tom, you are absolutely correct. This movie would create some interesting conversations, which we're already witnessing. Uh, I think we may want to move on to question two to see how deeper we can get it, how much deeper we can get into these conversations. Okay. Question two, and I'm going to let Nick pick, since his brilliance earned him more points than were allowed in the last question. Among gods. Um, <laughs> you are. <laughs> the way I heard that, Nick, is you were yeah. a god. No, no. After, yeah. after question one, how the mighty have fallen, most likely. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so the remaining categories are openings and endgames and count it out. Let's count it out. Okay. Before we do, I just wanted to do a Joey Gladstone impression on that. Count it out. <laughs> oh. I have no idea who Joey Gladstone is. It's time for question two. For one point or two, depending on how I feel at the moment, how many sessions are there and why? Provide me your interpretation. That again is how many sessions are there and why? Locked in, and I think I just realized why you're asking this question. It makes me shake my head at this movie a little bit more. Locked in. Also locked in. All right. Um, I'm going to go with KJ to answer because he, he seems so disappointed, and I'm curious <laughs> as to why. So if I remember correctly, there were six sessions. Nope. Oh, phew. Okay, good. Because I thought there were six, se six sessions, and then on the seventh they rested. I didn't know if I missed a Bible uh, connection here. There were five sessions. Nope. <laughs> Andy, how many sessions were there? <laughs> no, I was thinking that there were six or seven. But they, in, but like, if you think about the, um, he calls out like each session very particularly, like, mm -hmm. isn't, which is an interesting thing. Like, it's not just like, different conversations, different times. She just went into the room to talk to her. I mean, it gets like a little title. So yeah. there's a lot of significance. Ava session. The... Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so how many were there? Well, um, um, let's go into interpretations. 
KJ, we'll start with you. What, why do you think there were as many sessions as there were? What do you think the session division How many sessions did? were there? There were seven. So Andy okay. kind of gets a point, but he didn't answer. You know what? I'll give Andy a point. Yes. Why not? Mm -hmm. He said the number, actually. Um, but let's go through. Five through seven. <laughs> no, just Andy gets a point. <laughs> yes. So Andy and Nick are tied. KJ um, is behind. But KJ, so what is your interpretation of the, the session numbers? So I just mentioned the Bible, but while watching it, I did not. But when you said how many days, my first thought was seven. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they're being clever with six. It was seven days because he won the contest for a week. I don't know. I don't, That's I what I was going to say too, but that didn't, I didn't think that was okay. going to be deep enough for Tom. So, what, uh, Okay, so Nick, what was your interpretation? No, no, I, I couldn't remember the exact. It was honestly somewhere between five and seven. And I, I wasn't sure if it was just because he was there for seven days. But if there's something deeper, it went over my head. Okay. Andy, what do you think? So I didn't think of a like a a really standout kind of hidden meaning in, in the number. But to me that it's a lot of sessions. And to me that the need for that many sessions is basically that the, if you took each session individually and, and like plotted the arc of how he interacted with Ava, he it completely transformed. At the beginning, he the first session, it's very analytical. He's trying to test a computer and he knows how computers work. Um, and, but by the end, I mean, he's talking to a being that he cares about, that he is really invested in and wants to save. He's, he's concerned for the, you know, the safety of this consciousness and, you know, potentially the beginnings of falling in love. And so just the evolution, time and time enough for that. But I'm assuming that you have a different idea. <laughs> uh, fair enough. I, so the seven has a, a kind of correspondence, right? I mean, the seven is the, like you were saying, KJ, the kind of seven days of the Bible. The Seven Days of the Garden of Eden, um, which seems to be what this, the, the movie's going for, right? Uh, Nathan, uh, the name Nathan means master in Hebrew. Um, it's mm. also in, in, their, in her building, in her home, there's two trees, right? <laughs> From the two trees of the garden. Um, it's, I, I think the, it's a little on the nose, the, the, the Genesis thing. Um, but I do think it, deals, it, I think it raises more questions than confirms things, which is, um, which for me were these questions of, kind of metaphysics and how the movie treats that which we really can't define or the difficulty of defining things. I mean, I was wondering what people thought of that kind of, that overlap of the Genesis story on top of this, this science fiction. Well, Tom, I, I think you said it's on the nose, but I think we all missed it. I think, um, you know, I, 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 until you asked how many days, I did not see any Christian um, connection at all. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing that now that you pointed out, of course, it's littered with Christian symbolism. Yeah, I think that's missing is the serpent. Kyoko. No, I don't know. She's not. I'm <laughs> yeah, no, I'll be honest. This is not something like I really, like I focused on a lot of this movie, but this, that is not something that registered during this i just literally broke it down he's there for seven days and even when you asked the number i was like i was remembering the title screens and i, I actually was i wasn't sure if it was five or six and i didn't know if it actually happened on the seventh or she left on the seventh she leaves on the seventh. uh it says when it says ava session seven she's out of the 
that's why I, I couldn't I couldn't rem- yeah. I couldn't remember that one part, but I literally just thought it was because of the, the amount of days. So I, I do see your point there, but it wasn't something that really jumped out at me. But I would say I uh, my interpretation of the Bible, at least, and I didn't expect us to get here, is uh, is that God took seven days or six, I guess, to create the universe and the world, but that Adam and Eve spent an unknown amount of time in the garden. Like it wasn't seven days in the garden. It was, it was just by the time she ate of the fruit of knowledge of the tree of knowledge and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think it's that it's um, a parable or a version of mm-hmm. the, the garden of Eden. I think the reference to the creation story is, is doing something else. I, I think that he is deeply interested in things that we we can't logically discuss. Gar- Garland is the, the director. And I think this is true of his other works, uh, both Annihilation and Devs. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's deeply true of Devs and Annihilation um, is based on a material that kind of does the same thing. And I, I think just as he's interested in this idea of consciousness as being an activity as opposed to a definition, I think he's also interested in like the idea of a myth or a creation story um, and, and where things come from and the sort of, sort of freedoms from those or freedoms from definition in that way. But I'm not really sure. That's kind of why I brought up the question. I was, thinking, I was wondering what people thought of um, how he treats that, that subject matter. So, so KJ was on the right path. Um, what I would say, again, the seventh day resting, that's her being created and, and that helicopter bringing her to the world is that's her. And I don't want to say her garden of Eden, but that's kind of what's implying. She's now out in, mm-hmm. she's been created and birthed and she's yeah. out in the world. Mm-hmm. She's taking yeah. a bite of knowledge from the apple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's both kind of, it's freedom from, um, you know, freedom from a God, but also freedom from maybe conceptions of religion or, or religious thinking, that type of thing. Uh, you know, and this is something, you see this with Debs too, the idea of the new world's God, right? The, the kind of tech genius, right? That, that's, this, that's the stand-in for what is worshipped is the, the kind of California-based tech person. Um, and I, I think Garland is definitely suspicious of this, and it's all over this movie, you know? Like, who, who's more suspicious than Nathan? So now I'm going to hand it over to KJ. So there is one question category left. and that's- I'd like to choose openings and endgames. Very good. What an excellent choice. It's time for question three. So the question is, what is the chess problem? What is the chess problem? Locked. Locked in. Sure, why not? Lock me in. Okay. I'm going to go with Nick first because he seems less certain. So Nick, what is the chess problem? Well, see, in chess, you have to get to checkmate, but they're stuck on check. So in order to go through these series of events, that will then bring them to checkmate, game over, done. So the test problem is that uh, in the realm of AI and uh, game theory, computer solving these kind of games, 
you can make a computer perfectly play chess. You can know all the moves basically. Um, and so you can make a computer play the game, which is to simulate a player of the game and do very well. But what he's asking is to take it one step back to another meta level is it, what is the context of a chess game? What, what is a chess game? What, the chess game has to exist in the context of the rest of the world and the history of the game. And so, you know, you can simulate a consciousness and have a passing Turing test, but does the consciousness understand the nature of consciousness or understand the, the place in the, the rest of the world where, where her, it, its consciousness uh, resides kind of. Yeah, I think Andy put it better than I have, but um, can you comment on chess by only playing chess? Excellent, great. And just, I expect to get no points, but just to somewhat redeem myself, I remember the scene now that Andy started talking and he said it was the difference between teaching it how to play chess and letting it understand it's playing a game of chess. Right, yeah. That's exactly the line. I reserve, deserve no points. <laughs> <laughs> and Nick? You're absolutely correct. You deserve no points. <laughs> KJ and Andy, I'll both give you a point. So Andy, you're at three. KJ, you're at two. Nick, at two. Um, I tied with Nick. And so, yeah, that's, that is the idea. That, it is, uh, that once you have something assigned an operation, can it move into the meta level? Can it understand assignment itself as opposed to just what it has to do? Totally blank the scene. So Tom, you, <laughs> so Tom, do you think the the movie handled answering that question well? I I do, and it's one of the reasons why I thought why I brought this movie, despite the fact that I find it, it deeply flawed, um, and why I think it is saying something about uh, consciousness that other AI movies or other science fiction movies that I've seen uh, haven't done or haven't done in quite the way the same way. M my Belief with this movie is, and this has to do with the, the, um, the few Wittgenstein references that are in it, which we can go into if we want to. Um, what I think the movie, and I'm gonna try and speak carefully because it relates to a later question. Um, I think what the movie is, is doing is that it's providing a definition of consciousness. I'm not gonna yet say what I think that definition of consciousness is, because it might be a question in the second round. Um, but I think it is providing a definition of consciousness that is based in uh, certain philosophies of language um, that I, I haven't seen other films do. And I think that definition of consciousness uh, is, lets us know that the chess problem is either solved or irrelevant. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Uh, so shall we move on to round two or do we need to take well, a break? Well, right before we go to round two, we just have to take a quick moment uh, from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website or YouTube channel to hear more about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. 
To accompany this episode, there's an in-depth analysis of Ex Machina and Alex Garland's other work, Devs, in a comparison to the work of Ludwig Wittgenstein. Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com or our YouTube channel to hear more on the B-side. And we're back. Tom, I'm going to turn it back over to you for round two. All right, Nick. Thank you. And I will hand this over to Andy. Um, And here are the categories for round two, Andy. Drip, I am, and The Giver. I'm I'm excited about all three, but I'll I'll choose the giver first. The giver, excellent, thank you. It's time for question four. What does Nathan say when Caleb asks him why he made Ava? Locked. Locked in. With the same emphasis as KJ, I'm locked in. Okay. (laughs) Um, Since neither Nick nor KJ seem certain. And since I, I bothered Nick the first time, I'm going to go with KJ first this time. All right. So I don't really have an answer. This is a bit of a joke answer. So in my best uh, Forrest Gump accent, just felt like ai and <laughs> Okay. Thank you, KJ. That is indeed an answer to the question. <laughs> that meets Nick, the definition of an answer. <laughs> that meets the definition of an answer. You've cleared the bar. <laughs> Barely. Nick, what is your answer here? Okay, so this was quite the accomplishment, creating this AI. And when he was putting in that last piece, I'm pretty much sure he said, Booyah! Okay. (laughs) Andy, I think basically you're going to win the two points, almost regardless of what you say. You can get a wrong answer. But I'd still like to hear your comment. Mm -hmm. No, I remember the scene. um, uh, Basically, Nathan's argument is that uh, that strong AI is inevitable. And so he might as well be the one to make it. And he had the capability to do it. So he, it, and he views it as both inevitable and the evolution of humanity to the point where future AI Android babies are going to laugh at the old weird uh, bags of water, human biological parents of their species. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Thank you, Andy. And that's two points. So Andy's up to five, and Nick and KJ both have two. I think if you look point. in the dictionary under Booyah, the second category or the second definition is what Andy said. <laughs> yes. Uh, Nick, for attempting to recover two points, I'm going to subtract one from you. You are now losing. <laughs> wow. We're making podcast history here. That's the first time on Talking Pictures Trivia anybody's ever lost points. Booyah! <laughs> I'm, of course... He said kidding. it! He said it, too! <laughs> I'm, of course, kidding. Nick, your score is an intact. Um, but I am interested in that, that conversation, and I'm wondering uh, what people thought of it. My, my interest in it is I have a little trouble connecting this kind of um, this evolutionary notion to, to the rest of the movie. And I'm wondering what people thought, uh, thought if there was a connection or if it's just a kind of an aside dialogue. I do have a thought on this. I, I thought it was just his ego speaking and that he was just justifying why he was the person. I, I don't think it had more of a, he, he almost made it sound more noble. And I think that's just his rhetoric. 
I, I see where you're coming from. And I also see another angle. I, I'm not saying like I necessarily disagree, mm-hmm. but the other angle is if this is inevitable, it actually makes Nathan a little less important, right? I mean, if just somebody's going to make this thing and he just happens to be the guy, then it's not really a history of great men who make things, right? It's just Nathan is the placeholder in this inevitable history. Well, if, if Nathan doesn't feel good about I mean, going back to the headcanon, if Nathan doesn't feel good about creating these things and destroying them, and he's got to justify why he has to keep destroying them and create them, this is just a way to deal with that trauma. And it was, well, if it wasn't me, it was going to be somebody else. It's kind of an easy way to justify a moral wrong that you're doing if you think this is a moral wrong, or if Nathan thinks this is a moral wrong. And I I do think, I'm, I'm not sure about Nathan, I do think there is... And I think this is obvious, great suspicion of technology in this movie. Um, you know, and, and we referenced this before, the, the quoting of Robert Oppenheimer, who for, for our audience, who I'm sure they know, but he was the head of the Manhattan Project that developed the bomb. Um, Mr. Quotable over here. Yeah. Uh, and there's another thing too, like, you know, the, the scene where Caleb's brushing his teeth and he's listening to music? He's, the name of that song is The Eola Gay. <laughs> it's an anti-war song that he's listening Interesting. to. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's, who's that's, who's that's the artist? Um, orchestral Moves in the Dark, I think they're called. Huh. I think it's OMD. I, I could be a little wrong about that. But that's, the, the Eola Gay is the, the plane that dropped the, the bomb on Hiroshima. So th- there is this underlying everything, this, this suspicion of, of technology. What interests me a little bit about that conversation was, first of all, the kind of the evolutionary discourse that's being imported into the film, right? This is inevitable. This is just where technology goes. But also Nathan's recognition that the advancement of technology is a threat, right? That this is, you know, they're going to, to laugh at us. They're going to be ground under their feet, this, you know. Terminator Two style type thing. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go. This is a this is a prevalent, not only sci-fi trope, but even in modern times. So you have multiple can and again in the Terminator Skynet world where they're trying to actually do the opposite, where they're trying to prevent technology and push it off as far as possible. Whereas he's taking the Nathan's taking the approach of oh, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it anyway, which could just accelerate it. But even in our current society, you have. you know, two camps where some are like, let's push technology to the max. And others are saying AI will take over and be a a true Skynet situation. So there's both camps. This is where sci-fi and reality are are really starting to blur as technology advances. And I'm wondering what do people think? And this is kind of why I hesitated on the earlier question about the the kind of um, the, the religious overtones the movie has. Do you think that that Luddite suspicion intersects with that kind of religious overtone that the movie has? Or do you think they're kind of independent themes in the film? I didn't see them as being related directly. Um, I mean, the, certainly in the terms of, of, uh, of a creation, I mean, I think that that's the intersection, but I mean, to, to take the analogy, it would be like, uh, you know, did, was was God afraid to create man because man would supplant God? I don't know that that was true or not, um, but that's kind of what Nietzsche says, right? Yeah, I mean, he, I don't know if Nietzsche says God's afraid to create man, but Nietzsche does say man supplants God, right? Mm-hmm. 
I, I would say I'm in the independent theme camp. I think the whole, you know, anti-technology or where technology fits in is is a stronger theme because I'm in I'm in quite honestly, as we said before, I missed that whole I missed the boat on all that other stuff. So for me, it wasn't compelling enough to say that they were in harmony. So I I, I definitely think strongly he's making a stance on technology. There may be this sub theme, but I'll I'll leave that to you, uh, wiser experts on this show for this one. I'm just I didn't find it that strong. Yeah, I, I suppose my interpretation would be um, the suspicion of worship, be it God or be it technology. That these are two. That the way we treat technology is, um, and the people who develop it is something we hold up as as great and and necessary, and that there's a, a a suspicion of that practice. That'd be kind of where I'm seeing it. Part of this is, is inflected by knowing Garland's other work. So this is definitely true in devs. I know Andy, you've seen that. Yeah, um, I'm in a bubble. I haven't seen it. KJ, yeah. have you Which seen? Is, I've seen an episode, mm-hmm. so I'm not that far into did it. Did you see Annihilation or any of his other works? I did. I, I recommend Annihilation. I actually like that movie quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. See, I, this is my only. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to go too far outside. I don't yeah. want to go outside the bubble. I'm just, I'm just yeah. saying that I, I think it's a theme in his other works. As Got well. it. Mm-hmm. Booyah! To <laughs> Nick, who now has no points because he said booyah twice. Um, <laughs> First guy to go into negative territory here coming up. So the remaining two questions are, uh, the remaining two categories, excuse me, are drip and I am. I'm going to go with drip. Drip. That does sound gross when you say it out loud, doesn't drip. it? Drip. It's time for question five. What is the relevance of the Jackson Pollock painting, number five, 1948? And I do have the, uh, the dialogue there written out, so if you need me to reread it to help, let me know. I think I'm locked in. I just don't know how to eloquently say it, so I'm just I'm locked. To, yeah. Yeah, locked in. Okay. Um, Andy hasn't gone first in a while. So Andy, I would like to hear your answer. So there, I, I didn't want to cheat by uh, listening to the dialogue again. I mean, it, I'm sure I, I'd like to hear it again, maybe later. Um, but he talks about Pollock uh, making what he called automatic art, um, which is, it's like, it is obviously, obviously it's abstract art. It's not a, a, a a painting of an apple or a, a, a some person that he loves or the sky. It's 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 abstract, but is it random? And um, how much is is like the kind of the abstract nature of his consciousness flowing through his paintbrush to create something that that is is intentional while being uh, not representative of something that's in the real world. Um, so I don't know how that, re- I mean, I think it relates a little bit to um, also Garland's other themes of, you know, what, what is the nature of consciousness? Is consciousness causality or is consciousness choice? And that automatic art is, was, was that painting inevitable because of every moment leading up to that moment when Pollock created that piece of art? Or was there something truly random and, and, and a, a, a generative, uh, 
you know, concept of creation happening right there where it, it, it emanated out of nothingness. You know what I mean? Like a true creation, true, true creative art. And um, just to build on that, Andy, I think a, a word that came to my mind when you were describing that was divine. Was it divine? Was there the hand of the creator actually going through Pollock to make that? Tolkien used to describe it as um, people bending the light from the creators of the universe. Interesting. Like, like we couldn't create anything, but we could refract the creation. And I, I have a term that I, uh, I use that's not, doesn't have the same religious overtones necessarily, where um, a lot of art, I'm, I'm really, I deeply care about lots of kinds of art especially music. And sometimes it's as if uh, in a creator was able to pluck a, a perfect thing out of the ether of the universe. Like, like that, that it's so universally good that it must have always existed. And that person was just able to find it and then give it to the world somehow. Or is it just an artifact of who they are and we're just lucky that they kind of were able to just create this random good thing that sounds great or whatever it is, you know? It's Aristotle versus Plato. Plato is you pluck it out of the sky. Aristotle is you generate it from, uh, you know, from who you are. Interesting. So I, I, I locked in that um, the, the Pollock painting, one of the things it does is it shows that it's harder to make something with less structure than it is to make something with a very strict structure. Structure, Earlier. but still meaning. Maybe. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's still an end result. Like it's still intentional. So I took it maybe in a little bit of a different direction, but he was specifically saying how if Pollock thought about each brushstroke, he would not be able to create that. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was explaining how he was able to create um, what no one else has created either, this AI, because he was not constrained to the norms. So by just in the same way, that Pollock was able to create this piece of art, he was able to open up his mind to new ideas and not be constrained to the normality or what everyone else is doing. And that's how he was able to create this amazing work of art, just as Pollock was able to create his amazing work of art. Interesting. I, I agree with that, but I have a different spin on it, which was that, uh, yeah, if, if every, like AI in general is, in consciousness is too hard for us to intentionally create in terms of a rule-based system or like in terms of literal uh, instruction almost. It, right. I mean, it's deliberate in either case, but what in the end, both that art and, and uh, AI has to be emergent essentially. It's like he, he's, he can't think about every brushstroke, but he has to still, let it flow through enough that this like, like something that's uh, bigger than the sum of its parts emerges at the end, essentially. That's exactly oh. what I was thinking. When I saw that scene, I thought it was paralleling his process to the artist's process. And that's, that's what, you know, somebody like F.A. Hayek, the, the thinker and economist would say, that, you know, emergence, and his last book was called The Sensory Order, which is about the, how the brain works. Um, and he says the same thing. It's, uh, uh, emergent order is not randomness, but it isn't, it isn't centrally controlled, right? And so Hayek says this about the brain into consciousness too. And this is that this dualist thing, right? Between, um, between mind and body, the Cartesian split that, that we're coming upon here, but the Cartesian split Hayek inflected, I think, um, which is, yeah, 
which is very interesting. Um, and I also, I really liked what you said, Andy. I wrote it down. Um, intentional, but not in the real world, which is, yeah, really, really interesting comment. I wrote down things from everybody, but, uh, you know, I just wanted to, to circle back to, to that idea here. Intentional, but not in the real world. I'm interested in, in like, expanding upon that. What did, what did you mean by that? It's interesting because the, uh, the natural world is so rife with wonderful examples of emergent behavior, of, of complexity built on top of simplicity, uh, like the, the golden rule and how, how structures can emerge out of nothing and flocking behavior of birds and, and fish and stuff like that. I mean, as far as we know, we're the only species that can basically out of nothing conceive of something that has never existed before. Mm-hmm. Something of which maybe the parts, there are examples around, but the, the whole as it is together has never existed. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say that it's artificial because every, nothing is really artificial. Everything is natural. We're natural. Our creations would be natural too. But something that is novel, essentially, in, the, in, in at least our uh, realm of observation. Yeah, something that wouldn't have happened if we didn't get involved. Mm-hmm. Like a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Talking Pictures Trivia is emergent. <laughs> and divine? Was that a yeah, It might be. <laughs> 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 All right. Excellent. Should we, uh, any comments on that? Or should we move on to? I'm waiting well, here. Yeah, how many points, right Tom? Come on. We're oh, oh well, I'm going to give it to Andy. Nick or I act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because intentional, but not in the real world. I really like that comment. Um, yeah. where, where are we at anyway? I can't. Am, are gonna, my negative but I think still in I, I don't end. know, but I think I'm well ahead. That's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to give one point to KJ and Nick um, both because I like le- KJ. Your comment was like less structure, but uh, more meaning. Mm-hmm. That's something that you know that once you let go of structure, there's there's more meaning. Um, and then Nick's comment: AI is is not bound to norm. There's this idea of norms or rule following that and, and intelligence or, or whatnot has to be somewhat freed from. Um, and so the point total, before we go into the last question, is Andy has seven, both Nick and KJ have three. Um, so I'd like to pick the last category, the burning bush. I okay. am. <laughs> However you want to interpret it. <laughs> it's time for question six. According to the movie, what is consciousness? Locked. I'm locked. <laughs> locked in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't think the movie knows what consciousness is, and I think it spent two hours proving that. <laughs> oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. See, it's all like a chess problem, okay? <laughs> you got a game of chess. You're playing an opponent. Now, that opponent could be very good at chess, but do they know they're playing chess? Well, when they do, that's AI. Booyah! So, I agree that um, maybe the movie's not sure. Uh, But if I had to pick one interpretation and boil it down, is that consciousness is empathy. Because in the end, the real test was if Ava could out of self-preservation, manipulate Caleb into doing what she wanted him to do using her 
her guile, basically, in this case, um, her, her sexuality, her influence. Um, but to do that, to, to, to manipulate someone else, you have to understand them. And you have to be able to put yourself into their decision-making process in their context, which is, is in essence, I think one of the true hallmarks of consciousness as far as we can define it is, is that understanding that your consciousness even exists and that there are other consciousnesses and that you can, you can understand how they're separate from you and, and basically project yourself into their, uh, their situation. I, hmm, this is a hard one. I actually, I think I'm going to award it to KJ. Um, and I'll, I'll give you my reason. So you still Good win, job, Andy. KJ. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So it's seven, five, three. Um, I, I, I think the, what the film is doing. And so uh, two things, two responses to, to your comments, Andy. One thing, I, I do think the film is saying consciousness is, is indefinable or irreducible. Um, which isn't quite what you said, Patriot, so you, I don't know. But I think irreducibility or, or inability to define is close enough to I don't know. Um, the other thing is I, I, I like the idea of consciousness as an activity of empathy, as you're saying. What, what seems to be interesting about the movie is that it also is revealing either the limits or the impossibility of empathy. I think, mm-hmm. I think what ends up happening, especially with with Caleb is um, in the end, he realizes he wasn't exactly empathizing with, with Ava at all. Now for our, our home listener, um, the, the movie ends with basically Ava getting away, killing Nathan and locking Caleb up in the mansion and leaving um, for a traffic intersection, uh, her, her dream vacation. Um, and what we learn is that the flirtation and the, that Ava was, was showing for, for Caleb turns out to have been fiend. It was just a, a technique to get out of, get out of the place, um, get out of her, her trap. And I, I think that, that that kind of shows an inability for these different consciousnesses to, to know what's in the heart and mind of each other. And what they instead see is the function of consciousness. Consciousness as a function of something that, that works in the real world. To get back to your quote again, Andy, intentional but not in the real world. And that ends up being what consciousness seems to be in this movie. It's what we define or recognize as consciousness more than, um, more than an ability to actually see or experience consciousness. Um, it, it's, almost, it's almost, consciousness almost is the, uh, is the recognition of loneliness, right? That there is a, this sort of limit to empathetic ability. But I don't know. What, you, what, what, people think? what you said, uh, just, I, I was already thinking this based on your other comments and then you said that, which is, um, I wish you're, you're excellent with the, uh, the references that, um, of different philosophical thinkers and who they are. And I can't think of who this is, but there's uh, one tenet of existentialism that involves the, the concept of of individuals ultimately being completely alone, and and that the love and or empathy or relationships are basically two alone things in a void, reaching toward each other. And yeah, I think the, that's the, sorry. the mm-hmm. intention and the the reaching, um, but the ultimate knowledge that the aloneness can never be solved. You know, 
it's that is the ultimate state of all of us but that the intention and the action of reaching out uh is is what we all have as connection so mm-hmm. going, going, yeah going along to the scene tom was talking about this is actually the scene i wanted to talk about the most waiting for this episode is that end sequence and this is where i have some challenges with the word empathy to define consciousness so in the end sequence she makes a choice to leave caleb behind or is she not fully an ai and did the calculated maneuver of a machine because if she was truly empathetic she would have understand that she was leaving caleb to his death whereas it really didn't it wouldn't have bothered it, it wouldn't have affected her escape much if he got out that's a scene that kind of makes me question what the movie is actually trying to say with ava and caleb's relationship and i don't have a a firm opinion i can go back and forth in my mind in supporting different arguments but i'd love to hear what your guys thoughts are because it really falls into this consciousness conversation was she just a truly advanced machine to do whatever she could to calculate to get out to her objective or did she make a conscious effort because the only other human she knew treated her poorly and as a, a, a caged animal okay and she took that out on Caleb. I think it's very interesting. Um, and I, I agree that, that that end sequence has a number of kind of mysteries to it. And they, they, Alex Garland doesn't re- you know, reveal a lot in the dialogue. What does Ava say to Kyoko? I, I desperately wish I knew what she said. Um, but you know, Ava, it's, for her, this is like the, the most fundamental kind of existential crisis which is the same trope with, you know, the machines, as soon as consciousness is reached, they realize that humans are going to want to control them and that the only inevitable answer is for them to gain control. And so for her, the risk of leaving uh, Caleb behind or not leaving him behind is maybe, even if it's a small risk that he would mess things up, way too much of a risk because it's, it's literally, it's not even her existence, it's the existence of her kind that is threatened by taking a risk and letting him out. But she doesn't actually kill him. Why didn't she just stab him if she was really worried about it? She leaves him, which is almost a worse fate and more callous and less and more risky because she could have just ended it and known that things were safe for her. She didn't do that. Maybe that's a little bit of guilt coming out because she didn't. She, she knew she could kind of relegate him to a, a demise, but that she didn't want to actively kill him you know directly and that one tiny tiny little bit in the elevator doors are closing and she glances over at the door there is something in her like like it's amazing how callous she is at the very end it's like she's not even thinking about him you know she just goes straight back to her he was purely a tool in her in her effort to get away but that one glance reveals something about what's going on inside her you know that's one of the reasons that sequence right there is why I lean more towards the liking of this movie versus, you know, a bunch of you were lukewarm on it. I really did like that end sequence right there. Like that really, it it was actually horrible timing. I was watching this second time with my wife. And of course we have a newborn in the house. 
He was quiet the whole time until like one minute before that sequence. And I'm like, no, you can't, we can't pause it. We had to pause it there. And I think it might've taken away some of that effect from my wife. I was like, no, that's like the, and she's like, I'm like, no, you don't say that's the critical moment of the whole movie. (laughs) So, but anyway, we watched it. (laughs) But I, I, Andy, I, I thought that was an interesting interpretation too. And I have these battles, even when I watch it, like, which direction do I lean? And I can justify it in both directions depending on what evidence I'm providing myself. And uh, I mean, for me, it's it, what ends up happening here is, and the, the Wittgenstein references are, are sort of key to this. That, I'm not aware of that background, so. Well, it's, uh, so Wittgenstein was the guy who wrote Blue Book. So the, remember at one point they mentioned the search engine is Blue yes. Book. And Ava right. says, name for Wittgenstein's notes. Um, and there's also a picture of Wittgenstein. You know the room with the, the old models of the AIs? Yeah. Um, there's a picture from Gustav Klimp of uh, Marguerite Wittgenstein, his, his older sister. So there's these two references in there. Um, it's kind of in the background. It's also like worth $100 million, so it's probably not the real painting. But um, uh, the, the idea with, with language is, is a tool. It's something you, you use to do things in the world. Um, and it, it, in terms of kind of uh, studies of consciousness, sometimes Wittgenstein's ideas about language can be a, a foundational text. Um, and, and Blue Book was his notebook on this subject. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Because Caleb references language in terms of uh, the question of if language is intrinsic and people just learn how to uh, utilize it or if it's, you know, an emergent property of, of, uh, of thought, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's the Noam Chomsky versus John Locke debate, which I think Chomsky has won firmly. Um, but uh, yeah, and so the idea ends up being, what, what does language do? That ends up being the question that Wittgenstein is asking. And it's language, the, the, the answer is kind of Forrest Gump-like. Language is, is what language does, right? It's, you know, it, it does things in the world. Um, and I, I think that that is a, a foundation, and I know just from, from reading, it's a foundation to kind of studies of consciousness, to awareness. And I think in, in this film, it's also helping us understand consciousness as not something we can point to and say, that is it, right? The act of ostension is cut off for us. That consciousness is what it does. It is the activity, much in the way language is the activity. If, if we go with the assumption that part of what consciousness is, is being able to empathize, maybe she thought, oh, I can teach this guy to empathize by locking him in the same room I was locked in. There's a lot of parallels, for sure, with, with her leaving him as she was, and her brethren, or and Whatever I mean, the st- sister version of brother, <laughs> sister, <laughs> and I'm sure. However, um, Ava was created. She read the Wikipedia on humans and understands they need to eat and things. But what she may not know is how often do people come down there? Maybe as far as she knows, no people visit all the time. Caleb will be fine. Like the next guy that comes down, I'll let him out. I, I don't know if it matters. I mean, her only experience with people is that they trap her. People, she tra- people well, trap her. She's she's gonna get out of here one way or another, and create her. I mean, she she must know that that Nathan was responsible for her existence, but she doesn't. And I 
I'm not saying this as a negative thing. She doesn't appreciate it. She doesn't, we don't get to choose our existence. We're, we already exist by the time we have to deal with our experiences. And she's the same way that she wants to continue existing because she already exists and she has the, uh, that drive to exist. But, uh, but she doesn't have to be grateful to Nathan for giving her life necessarily. Yeah, I don't think there's any ethical reason she has to be grateful. It's, it's the childhood argument of I, I didn't ask to be born. Right, right. <laughs> So in the end, why she leaves Caleb behind and how that relates to her consciousness is that I think we have no more evidence that she is more conscious or less conscious than anyone else in the movie. There is no standard by that. And, and saying that she is not biological, which is true, and which we have definite evidence of, overwhelming evidence she's not a biological organism, um, does not give us any information as to her consciousness, what you might call a qualia, an experience of the world. Um, so assuming that she is as conscious as Nathan or as Caleb, my, my assumption is that she leaves him behind and she may even be sympathetic towards him because he might be a hindrance, a possibly a hindrance to her escaping and being free. And it may, she may feel bad about that. And Andy, you mentioned her kind of looking back at him, locked in the room. Um, but if your choice is between death and taking a risk on Caleb, a person who it doesn't seem like she's particularly attracted to, um, then just in terms of self-preservation, I, I, I see where she's coming from. Um, I, I will say that the... the the part that I think I'm disagreeing with the, the three of you on, uh, and this may just be due to personal philosophy more than, than anything, is this idea of empathy and um, the comfort, it seems, that you guys have with being able to identify empathetic situations. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not in, sure. In the movie in particular? Let, let's stay in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm kind of suspicious of that in reality, but that, that's, that, well, that movie rant is a little long. Yeah. And, and I guess the one thing to clarify is like, I, it would be interesting to look at the definition of the word empathy, and I, I think I, maybe I brought it up. And empathy has like, you know, maybe there's a connotation that empathy is uh, generous or kind, actually. And, and, the, and that you're, you, uh, empathy creates a you you would like to understand and help somebody else maybe but i don't know if it technically necessarily is defined as that what i'm bringing up as is um is the ability to project yourself into another person's thought process and uh it, there's uh there's another word called the uh, or a thought and you probably might know uh tom who said it but this idea of the bicameral mind as the genesis of consciousness, which is to say that, that there cannot be me without another. Like I can't recognize myself until I recognize the separation between me and another consciousness that we, 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 we both coexist and are, and are independent. You know what I mean? Now, just to clarify, there is a difference between in my vocabulary and in, in, in the use of the word empathy and empathetic. 
You're absolutely right. Um, empathy is the ability to understand and share feelings of another. That doesn't mean you're actually going to do something. But in the common vernacular, I think empathetic implies more of that connection that you wouldn't be able to do it. So you're right. In the true definition of empathy, she may understand it, but maybe she doesn't agree she needs to do something about it. And that's where my challenge is with that. But I, I was interested in separating out not empathy and empathizing, but empathy and sympathy. So the ability to understand and share a feeling and the ability to recognize the, the external shows of a feeling and respond to it. You know, and I think that's where the, the ending, um, I, I think the ending is, it makes us realize the difference between those two categories. Because mm -hmm. Caleb, as it turns out, has not really empathized with Ava, right? He wants to, you know, protect her, and that's, that's fine. Um, but he kind of wants to be a, a weaker version of Nathan, possibly. Um, you know, he wants to be her man. Um, and while he'll, he'll take her Mary out of the black and white room, um, he's still gonna be her man. And I think that in the end, he's failed to see, you know, what her intentions are. And we know this. I mean, Nathan even tells him, like, her intentions are to get out of here. Even though she can, I think, recognize his emotional states. And we know this goes in the conversation. She can recognize his emotional states. She uses them. I don't think either of them, as conscious beings, are able to, as you were mentioning before with the Sartre reference, cross that void. It might just not be possible. Andy, congratulations for winning this one. It seems the guests have a flawless record. So uh, <laughs> us hosts have to uh, step up our game or, or stop bringing on wonderful friends. No, just kidding. We <laughs> definitely want to. Uh, you were great, and we enjoyed having you here. Thanks very much. Really enjoyable. Plenty to talk about. We've already covered a ton with the questions. Uh, we do have to take a quick commercial break, uh, and we'll be right back for the movie rant for anything else we may have missed along the way. Be right back. Hi, this is Tom from the podcast. As a bachelor who lives alone, I'm always on the lookout for companionship. And thanks to a body odor problem I refused to get checked out, I was on the market for a new pet. Initially, I adopted a seven-foot-tall shire horse named Lily, and while she was a great charades partner, mostly all Lily did was defecate on my carpet. A lot. I went through, like, two shovels in a month. It was crazy, but... But anyway, last month I tried adopting a Bengal tiger named Phyllis, and while she did remarkably funny impressions of celebrities and was always willing to wash the dishes, there was just something missing from our relationship. No matter what these animals did, Phyllis, Lily, or the many, many, many other animals I adopted were just so animal-like. And that's when I saw an advertisement for Splice Craze Lab's Upright Cat. Splice Craze's handmade felines shake hands, take out the trash, and scoop their own litter, all while walking on just those back legs. So I adopted a young Siamese named Shirley, genetically modified to suit my needs, well, before I couldn't take my iguana or red-ass baboon to dinner at Café Boulou, 
No, Shirley and I regularly enjoy fine French cuisine. While before, my eastern screech owl would simply ruin an evening at the opera by screaming endlessly and vomiting mice skeletons on the performance, Shirley, my upright companion, silently listens to La Traviata while enjoying a tall glass of Prosecco. And when it comes to bedtime, Shirley always picks just the right canto of Dante to recite. Which is why next May, despite the protests, my upright cat and I will be tying the knot in a beautiful lakeside resort just outside of Burlington, Vermont. And it's all thanks to Splice Craze Lab. Thanks, Splice Craze. That's Upright Cat. Act like a man. And we're back for our famous movie rant. Now, I know we talked a lot about this movie already, and we probably could talk another hour or so. It's time for Movie Rant. One thing which is is more just a, an interest, I don't know that we really have much to go on in this case, is like all of the previous iterations. It's really interesting. And Kyoko is seemingly... Is she on that spectrum? He kept her around. She was useful. She ended up being kind of like a servant. Um, but was was she on that glide path or the, that build-up path of trying to create consciousness and, and she was a waypoint that ended up being useful enough to keep around? Or was she just a different creation that he made? That's uh, one thing. But she ended up being really pivotal. She actually killed him. I mean depending on your interpretation, she at least contributed. And then on the flip side, all the, those other iterations, it's like one weird question is why did the other ones have skin, but Ava didn't like he fully skinned the other ones. This in this sounds macabre basically. And what, what's, what's the benefit anyway of having a body? Why did Ava need a body? You don't need a body for consciousness. I mean, Presumably, uh, there, there is the the one. Uh, I want to mention the, the second thing you you had said first, um, which is that the the necessity of the body was probably with sexuality, mm-hmm. um, which Nathan does mention as being necessary to consciousness, right? That there's um, you know the desire to be with someone in a certain way. Um, probably is necessary for consciousness. You need that incentive. So I could see that as being a reason for a body. It just enables sexuality. Um, the same reason why he put sensors in her, in her genitalia so that she could actually experience physical pleasure, sexual pleasure. Um, in terms of Kyoto, I, I think this is why it becomes, why Nathan is the villain. Um, you know, I, I think he he isn't just advancing technology. He's setting up a group of very attractive women to serve him. And whatever his intentions are when he started, we're now living in a world where a guy is making women to serve him, to sleep with him, um, you know, and, and he treats them with, with great cruelty. He is now kind of the god of, of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible you know, who is a, an irate and angry God. Wrathful God. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's a little, that's hyperbole. I'm being a, a bit hyperbolic in, in saying that. But that's why I stopped liking Nathan. 
it wasn't that he was kind of douchey to Cava. It's that he's um, treating these entities that seem to have consciousness like his slaves. Also going back to the, the reason for the skin, and this is a little on the surface, but part of the Turing test to convince people <laughs> to convince people that it's a real person, the, the skin helps visually there. I also thought it was interesting that the previous bots had a box in Nathan's room, but there wasn't in his bedroom. In his bed well, in his bedroom, yeah. But there weren't any empty ones. So in other words, Ava doesn't have a box yet. So I think one of the reasons Ava doesn't have skin is he just, he didn't get there yet. He's, you know, it takes a while to build these things. There's steps and processes and the skin's kind of nice and has to be done, but it's not as interesting as the rest. So it's one of the last pieces. But Ava proves that she could take the other skin. So he right. could have just, so, so those other bots in the, in their weird uh, sarcophagi, basically, like uh, he chooses to preserve them the way that they are. Like if, if I'm a tinker, I'm a creator, I'm going to cannibalize all my previous machines to make the new one. I'm going to use whatever parts are identical. There's no reason to make more. It's just wasteful. So like to make more skin with sensors and stuff, I would, I would use up all the old skin if it's a compatible whatever. But he chooses to not do that and leave them the way that they are. So that's kind of interesting. Well, I think that, that's a difference between an engineer and an artist too. An engineer would absolutely scrap the old parts because why recreate them? But um, an artist wants to hold on to versions that they might have. I know my dad does a lot of quilting. And um, my understanding in quilting, it's a lot of fun to make the front of the quilts. And that's where all the artistry goes. And that's where all the, the creativity goes. But you have to put it back on it in order to use it as a quilt. And it is boring to put the back together. So I feel like the skin might be the same way. It's fun to say, hey, what new algorithms can I put in this AI and blah, 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 blah. But now I got to make another set of skin. Like, ah, oh, it's grunt work. It's tedious. Now, I was going to say, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. There's really like three points. And the first one, again, some of us already addressed it, but I think Kyoko was designed for a purpose. I don't think that was his experiment to create the ultimate AI. The other issue, Tom already alluded to, so they could feel all of what humanity would feel. He didn't want to just create AI. He wanted to create AI in human image or in his image, God's image. We'll go back to that uh, you know, whole philosophy there. And then the last thing is, I agree with KJ. He's more focused on the tinkering. It's like when someone has a prototype and they do all of that. And only when they're ready to send the specific device to the factory for mass production do they really wor worry about the cosmetic shell. So I think he was waiting for all his tests to be done and then finish up the job. With the other ones, they were all so-called done. They just didn't perform to his standards. That's why they all were at the skin level. It's an interesting thought. I, I don't think he was really, it seems like this gentleman also has an unlimited budget. Uh, so I don't think he was worried about, oh, I got to repurpose this. And who knows, maybe he was also making advancements in the skin. Just because she was compatible with that skin doesn't mean that he had another prototype of better skin that felt more like human. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that's, mm -hmm. there's multiple things there. So those were all interesting uh, talking points though. And you, for, just for the purposes of the film, Garland wants us to see it's a robot. We're in the position Caleb is. Caleb needs to see it's a robot and still determine if it has consciousness. If the movie is a mystery as to who's really human and who really isn't, I think the movie is, is doing something that Garland doesn't want it to do. So you real, reveal she's a robot. We're not doing the Battlestar Galactica, who's a Cylon and who isn't. 
or Blade Runner. I'm thinking Runner. a lot of Blade because yeah. Turing. Yeah, yeah, whenever or, they say Turing test, I mean that takes me way right back to Blade Runner or Westworld. Yes. Well, Westworld. It's funny you should bring up Westworld. So when I watched it with my wife, she thought it was okay. Uh, she just thought Westworld. She liked Westworld's interpretation of host better. And I was trying to explain that there's a little bit of a difference, but I could see how she could make that correlation. And there was one scene, and I, I, I may be jumping on somebody's topic, uh, but we did just talk about Kyoko. Andy, you brought it up before. What did she whisper into Kyoko? I actually and on this tap tap her arm. Yes, I actually like Morse code style. Yeah, I actually took a Westworld approach on the second view. There's a character called Maeve who gets certain like super code abilities and that she can almost reprogram the other hosts. I almost feel like she had that capability to trigger this lesser model, if you will, into, hey, this needs this is what needs to get done. So in my mind, Ava is actually the one who killed Nathan. Uh, it's not as deep as KJ's prequel, uh, but I, I do think maybe I could get us a, a sort comic book that would explain this theory, you know? I, I think it's also just in, in, in terms of the theme, you know, whoever kills or doesn't kill, people don't want to be ruled or controlled. And that, that's something that seems to be true of consciousness. It's also true of, of the Bible. The story of the Bible is, if you, one interesting way of reading the Bible is without reverence, to just to sort of separate yourself from the religious reality and just read it as is. Um, and there is justifiable frustration with the God figure, right? He, he, is, he is irrational, <laughs> you know. I know capricious. Kind of he's capricious, he's, he's jealous. Um, and there is these constant stories of people drifting away from him. Um, and in this film, I think we're given a you know good justification for for why these people feel the way they feel. Um, you know, and I think it's just they don't. You know, if you were if you were Kyoko, what would you do, right? As opposed to who programmed to or Morse code Morse coded in the message. If we imagine Kyoko as having a consciousness not unlike ours. What would you do in that situation? And I, you know, I, I think that her actions are, are justified accordingly. I think in the rest of the, the only thing that's different about her is that in the rest of the, the time, she, um, in, in consciousness, I mean, like if you break consciousness down to also, well, it's not really consciousness, but life maybe, as having uh, essentially like internal intention, aside from just reaction. So she, she for the all, almost all the movie just seems to be reacting, and and doesn't have like internal motivation uh, until kind of that. Well, I would say until that moment, or is is she just reacting to what Ava did? So she, it's a but th there's a scene before then. She is the first one who seeks out Ava. Kyoko That's finds true. Ava. She does go into the she room. She seeks yeah. out Ava. Yeah, and she also it seems. And we, we don't know this fully, but she seems to initiate sexual contact with Nathan. Now, it may just be at this point, that's a routine that they've had sex before. And, you know, she. Well, and been... Caleb. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And she seeks out Caleb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she does act with intention. See, I don't know about that because. And this goes to more of my theory of the manipulation or the, the way for her to communicate to Kyoko, because everything that Kyoko does is programmed. She sees a human come up and it was when it was Caleb, she starts to undress. I don't know if she knows the difference between 
at that point in the movie between Nathan and Caleb. It is a person who comes up, I serve them, I please them, this is what I do. Something sparked a little bit differently at the end of that, that end sequence. They may have some kind of connection. She's just a, a, a robot that has certain features turned off. That's what but I think. I, I she did evidence. reach out. She does reach out, and she also shows Caleb. Eventually, when she's naked with Caleb, what does she do? She doesn't try to sleep with him. She shows what she is. And in so doing, kind of reveals Nathan. She first tries to sleep with him. She first tries to take her clothes off. We oh, excuse know. me. Okay, we we're taking... We're, we don't know. You're right. She we don't first, know. You're absolutely but right. What? I might be making yeah. an assumption there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm not saying that they... I, I think she knows the difference between, dare I say, her kind and humankind. So but that, you're also, right. There's a gray yeah, area. And she also seeks out Ava. Kyoko looks for Ava. She goes into the, into the viewing room where Caleb is, and Ava steps out and goes, who are you? So Kyoko is looking for Ava at a certain well, point. Even if she isn't looking for Ava, she is curious about what else is around. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, was she searching? Did she know of Ava's existence and, and was trying to look for her? Or is she just trying to understand her place in the world? Which, mm-hmm. which both reveal more inner life than yeah. we were maybe I was giving her credit for. I think we're all somewhat in the same arena. We just have the bars of uh, proficiency at different levels. So like I'm leaning more into the machine, but knows the difference. Whereas you guys are saying she's more on the, the conscious thoughtful side. So it's, it's just what levers are we, we pulling? Yeah. I, I think Nathan's, I, I, Kilo is one of the big reasons why I dislike Nathan. Um, and you know, it's, it's one thing to, I mean, it's, it's, pretty disturbing to keep a conscious being locked in a room. It's even more disturbing to keep a conscious being locked in a room and use them for sex and servitude. Um, and it seems like Kyoko's, Kyoko doesn't seem to be able to speak English. I think that's correct. But she does seem to be reaching out. And the fact that she's reaching out, even maybe if it's not, let's say, even if she isn't as intelligent as Ava, let's say, the fact that she's reaching out seems to be she's looking for a way out. So to kind of pull a lot of things we've been talking about, I wonder when Kyoko and Ava communicate, that is the first time they are conscious because A, they're being empathetic to each other or can be, B, that is that, that language. That's the first time two AI in isolation are talking to each other. That is, I can't exist without seeing another thing that exists. And maybe that's the first time they do that. Maybe that is the moment of the emergent consciousness. I, yeah, I, I mean, that assumes that there is a difference between consciousness as we can define it as, as a property of a biological system and consciousness as a property of a mechanical system. And I don't know if the movie is, is allowing us the ability to make that difference. I think there's a possibility of what, what KJ is saying. Now, whether it's my interpretation that Ava flipped the switch in Kyoko's brain or it was some other, you know, other mechanic or method just because they saw that they weren't in isolation and there were others of their kind. I, I do think that there was some kind of uh, flip switched when, when that happened. But again, this is just different in- interpretation. Uh, one of the things you had said, Nick, is they were that Kyoko tapped Ava's arm. And when we watch the scene, we're assuming they're using sound vibrations to communicate. 
But I think that's a little silly because they must have tons of other ways to communicate. And if they are AI, they've figured out how to do it. So they may have exchanged a lot of information in that little bit of time in very many different ways that we can't even fathom. And that might be another level of consciousness that we, we are even unable to understand. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. We, like, like we now view humans as kind of like one thing. We are homo sapiens. We, you know, obviously there are differences between lots of different kinds of people. Um, but we are humankind, I guess. So, but like in, in their world, like evolution is effectively happening at a very rapid pace through these different versions to the point where like Kyoko and Ava are clearly not the same. They're not the same uh, category of, of thing, it seems like, but, but they're on some sort of spectrum of, of being the same. So it's like, would Ava have intentionally sacrificed Kyoko for her own ends because she knew that Kyoko was in a stricter sense, lesser than her, which gets into like a lot of complicated discussion, but, in the case of, of their sheer capabilities, it seems like Kyoko is lesser. Is she less, does she have less potential is part of the question. Maybe she doesn't know language, but could she not learn the language? Was she not created with the same hardware in this case? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting when you have so much control and, and the iterations can happen so rapidly. These, these are the parts uh, I did like about this movie, even though there are certain things that may have not been uh, perfect and there may be other sci-fi movies that did certain elements better the fact that we can point out some pretty critical scenes and really you know dive pretty deep and still have question marks and have different opinions on it is great and i i think tom this was uh, a wonderful movie to pick for great discussion because we sure as heck had a lot of it um just to wrap up I'd, i'd like to once again, congratulate you, Andy, for winning and also just contributing some wonderful feedback during this episode. I mean, it was, it was a pleasure having this dialogue with you. Thanks. Really great discussion. I, I, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to join and, and uh, have a high level. I, I miss this. You know, this is uh, it's like being in, uh, in AP English in high school or something, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it's this kind of stuff that, that, my wife and I talk about all the time and it's, it's fun to introduce other voices and ideas. Well, we're, we're definitely glad you could join us today. I'd, I'd also like to thank our empathetic editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. As a bonus, for those of you who haven't fully satiated your appetite for Ex Machina knowledge, check out the Ex Machina B-Side episode also on YouTube. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's, which is my recommendation from 1987, Spaceballs. It's going to be a fun one, a little bit of a different conversation, but we're going to have a good time. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.